The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's a lot of ways we see in this passage about responding to the gospel message. And we're all kind of faced with the decision today. How are we going to respond to this message? I pray that we would respond filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That we'd be a unique group in this community that would love other people like others have never seen. That your love for us would be so clear in our love for each other. And that we would have a heart to share the good news with other people in this, in this neighborhood. We pray this in Jesus' powerful and precious name. Amen. Amen. Really good for me to be with you today. Uh, I want to say uh, I really love your pastor, uh, Randall Tanini. I, I love the leadership team. Yeah, give it up for him. Uh, the, the leadership team here at Grace City that we've had the opportunity to meet. I've had a chance to meet a few of you this morning. And I am so excited about what it is that God is doing in and through you as a community, in this community. So God bless you, praying for you regularly in that effort. Uh, I also am excited to be here this morning because uh, I love the book of Acts. Uh, It's one of my favorite books in all of the Bible, and I know that you're uh, going through the book of Acts, you're taking a deep dive into it, and I have the privilege of looking at the passage that Josiah just read for you. Uh, Let me say that I've been at uh, outside church services. This is my third one, uh, kind of since COVID began. Uh, And so I've known what to expect in some. They've all been a little bit different. Uh, I was trying to anticipate what this one was going to be like. I see you really like to spread out. So I'm just making that observation. And I'm wondering what the leprosy is right here in the Middle Territory that causes everybody to move back. But it's, it's really good to be with you. You know, as a kid, one of my favorite TV shows was uh, Mission Impossible. And it always began the same way. Jim Phelps, who was the leader of the Mission Impossible team, would go to some secret place where he would find this envelope that was filled with pictures and a reel-to-reel tape. Anybody here know what a reel-to-reel tape? Yeah, some of us do. Okay. Reel-to-reel tape. And as he would begin to sort through those pictures, the tape would play describing the people in the pictures. And then at the end of the tape, it would always uh, end the same way. Your mission 
Should you choose to accept it, and this impossible mission would be described, and then the tape would just implode. And I thought, man, that's so great. I don't know how they do that, but it's cool to see that thing go up like that. No, of course, uh, a number of years ago, the uh, TV series was kind of redone with a series of movies, uh, Mission Impossible or the MI movies starring Tom Cruise. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, this year, MI, what is it, 21, 22 is going to be, it's something, I mean, it's probably not like that, but, you know, the, the movies are exciting and there's some unbelievable stunts, but the old TV shows were great. And what made them so great was not just the mission that the team had to pull off, but the brilliant strategies that the team used to accomplish the mission. It was really all about the strategies. Now, Jesus gave his church what might be called an impossible mission. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, you are part of his impossible mission team. And one of the questions that the team needs to ask itself is knowing that God has given us his Holy Spirit to accomplish the mission, what kinds of strategies are we going to to employ. Acts is the history of the church, and it tells how the church went about its mission and the strategies that, we, that it used. And what we're going to do today is kind of take a deep dive and look at one of the strategies and what it might mean for us today. Here it is. Our mission strategy needs to be determined by gospel receptivity. Our mission strategy needs to be determined by gospel receptivity. Now, some of you are going, duh. I mean, isn't that absolutely obvious? And in some ways, you think it should be. But the fact of the matter is that there are a lot of churches that kind of put together their strategy, ask God to bless it, instead of asking the question, Lord, what is it that you're doing? Where are you working? Where are people being receptive? And then putting their strategy around that. So let me set the stage for the passage which Josiah read. Paul and Bar or were Barnabas are on what is called, typically called Paul's first missionary journey. And both Paul and Barnabas were on the leadership team at the church of Antioch in Syria, which is kind of Palestine or the outside uh, of Syria today. And uh, at one point, while the church was praying and seeking God, the Holy Spirit very clearly said to them, I want you to set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. Now, you've got to understand, that would be like God saying to Grace City Church, I want you to side aside Randall and Billy and send them out. The amazing thing is the church did. They responded to the Holy Spirit because they were that sensitive to the Spirit and they were that committed to the mission. And so Paul and Barnabas first traveled to Cyprus, traveled, ministered through Cyprus, then went north and sailed up into present-day Turkey, landed in a place called Perga, went about 100 miles inland to another Antioch, this one known as Sidian Antioch. Now, when you look at their strategies up to this point, a couple things become very clear. They began by going to big population centers. So they focused on the cities, and when they went to the city, they went to the synagogue, if there was one there, 
because they knew that the people of spiritual interest, whether they were Jews or God-fearers, would be gathered there in the city. So when they got to city in Antioch, they went to the synagogue. And when they came to the synagogue, Paul, a visiting rabbi, was asked to give a word of exhortation. And the word that he gave was what Randall preached about so well last week, that Jesus is the promise who or is the one who fulfills what God has promised, that that culminates in his death and resurrection, and it makes new life and forgiveness possible for those who put their faith in him. Now, we call that the gospel. And the passage that was just read gives the different responses that people had when they heard that gospel message and then how it was that strategies were developed in light of that response. So the first observation that we can make about what the response is that the gospel creates curiosity. The gospel creates curiosity. You know, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, we read the people begged them to speak more about these things. That's a pretty strong word. Said they begged them to speak more about these things. They wanted to hear more. And the text tells us they invited them to come back and speak the following week. You know, in my experience, churches have done all kinds of things to attract people to a place where they would hear the gospel. Uh, I was talking with a pastor friend of mine just before Easter of this year, and he shared with me, uh, and the church was meeting outside at the time, well, we decided not to have an in-and-out truck come uh, for our Easter service. But he said it was amazing when I said that, one of the people on the staff, one of the younger guys on the staff said, who's going to come if we don't have an in-and-out truck? You know, and sometimes churches think we've got to do something to, whether it's a bounce house or it's a celebrity that comes in, you know, who has the ability to break bricks with his forehead or whatever it would be, that there's something that we have to do to attract people to hear the gospel. And I'll be honest, I've been a pastor for almost 40 years. I, we, our churches that I've led have done things like that. But friends, when it comes to arousing curiosity for the gospel, nothing can do it as much as the gospel itself. You know how people become curious about the gospel? It's the gospel. And that's why when Paul was finished, the people didn't go, wow, am I glad that guy's done. Talk about a long talk. Instead they said, hey, can you tell us more? Would you come back next week? And I think the reason the people wanted to do it is because they heard something that spoke to the deep questions in their hearts, that spoke to the, the longings that they felt in their spirit that talked about the hopes that they had for something better that would come. What makes people want to hear more of the gospel? The gospel. In his book, Future Church, Will Mancini notes that so many church leaders work hard to make the gospel relevant when, in fact, the gospel is the most relevant message in the world. He writes, the reason so many church leaders are tempted to seek power from so-called so relevance rather than from the gospel is because their gospel is missing pieces, or much more often, all the pieces are present, but they're not connected. And Mancini goes on to say that the primary piece in the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the heart of it. We can call that the redemption piece. But he said there are other pieces that are part of the greater gospel story. There's the fall. There is, I mean, there's creation, there's the fall, 
And then there's the new heaven and the new earth. And when all of those pieces are put together with the gospel at the center, you have something that is going to arouse curiosity. Let me just give you an illustration. Questions like, why does every life matter? Or why should I treat people with respect? Why should I enjoy physical food and drink and romance? Why should I care about the planet on which I live? Those questions are answered in the creation piece. Why doesn't life work the way it's supposed to? Why do good people suffer? Why is there hatred in the human heart? And and why don't our laws always reflect justice? Why can't I live up to my own expectations? That's answered in the fall piece. But then, can I really know the God of the universe? Is there a power that can change my selfish heart? Can groups who hate each other learn to be friends? Can I be forgiven of the bad things I've done? That's the redemption piece. And what's going to happen to the human race ultimately? I mean, it's all just going to go poof and be gone? Will there be justice for the oppressed? Will wrongs be made right? Is there a hope beyond the grave? The new heaven and new earth piece answers this question. And you see, as the people were listening to Paul speak that day, they said there's something in this big message that he brings that speaks to our questions, that speaks to our longings, that speaks to our hopes, and they wanted to know more. So it's the truth of the gospel that arouses curiosity, but there's also the power of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16, because it is the power of God, what? For salvation. Not just coming into a relationship with God, but being changed and being delivered from and being set free. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, when you see someone in your family radically changed, when there's someone at your workplace who goes from being just obnoxious to being someone that you want to be around, when there is a a neighbor who quite honestly could be described as a jerk, and all of a sudden they become pleasant. And and you say, why'd that happen? And when you realize that the gospel's behind it, you want to know more. So it's the gospel itself that creates curiosity for the gospel. But there was something else that goes on in terms of response. The gospel also aroused hostility. And so we see this uh, with the Jewish leaders. And I think when Paul first began to share the message in the synagogue, the one that you looked at last week, the Jewish leaders might have thought to themselves, you know, I'm not sure we agree with all of this. I mean, Paul Paul said uh, he called the law of Moses inadequate. Verse 43, he encouraged people to live not under the law, but in the grace of God. When Paul said words like that, I'm not sure that the Jewish leaders agreed, but I think they were hoping uh, it's going to pass away. These guys are just visiting from out of town. They're going to say this stuff, and then they'll be gone. But what happened the following week when they were invited back is they found out they were so wrong. We read that when the next Sabbath day came, verse 44, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And verse 45 continues, when they saw the crowds, they were jealous. They were jealous because they were threatened. And they knew that if people responded to the gospel the way that they were, that these people were good, that the Jewish leaders were going to lose their positions of power and influence. 
And so we read in verse 45, they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now the word contradict is made up of two words in the original language. Quite simply, speak and against. So to contradict is simply to speak against. So if you say yes, the person is going to say no. If you say no, the person is going to say yes. Some of you are saying yes, I have a son or daughter who's at that stage, and that describes them pretty well right now. The word blaspheme is a really powerful word. Uh, it trans or the word revile is a word that translates blaspheme. So it's a very powerful word. And we typically think of uh, blasphemy in connection with a person who says something or does something that dishonors God. But the person or the word can also mean apply to someone who is not worthy of any honor at all. So not only did the Jewish leaders find fault with everything that Paul was saying, but they tried to attack him as well, saying he was not worthy of any honor. They attacked his message. They attacked his integrity. They called the message a lie, and they said that he is a liar. Listen, friends, the same thing happened with Jesus. And the same thing may happen to you and to me if we live our lives on mission. Don't be surprised when people reject the message that you bring. And don't be surprised if along with rejecting the message, they're going to be speaking negatively about you and saying things that are not true at all. Don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. But at the same time, don't be deterred. How do you respond? I think like they did. You shake the dust off your feet. Verse 51 tells us, they shook the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Now, we don't use that phrase very much today, and we certainly don't practice it. If you tried to, you know, shake the dust off your feet, people would probably go, gosh, what's the guy? He's got a nervous twitch or he has, you know, ants that he's trying to get rid of or something. But I want to suggest to you, it's a powerful symbolic image. And I, and I want to explore it with you for just a moment. What did it mean for Paul to shake the dust from his feet. Well, why did he have dust in the first place? He had dust in the first place because he'd been on a long journey. And that long journey probably included travels over dusty roads. And the reason that Paul was on that long journey was to deliver a message. And Jesus was the one who set him apart and told him to speak that message. So the dust on Paul's feet was there because of the responsibility given to him. But then when he came to city in Antioch, there was this whole group of people who said, uh, we don't want uh, we to, we're not interested. Uh, they, they began to contradict the message and they found fault with Paul's character. And in response, what Paul did was to simply shake the dust from his feet as a way of saying, I have done all that I know how to do. I can't do anything else our responsibility is now your responsibility. And I want to say that we too have been given a responsibility by Jesus. We're called by Jesus to share the gospel. That's what the church is supposed to do. And as a result of that, there ought to be dust on our feet. And how long should the dust on our feet be there? 
either until the people that we are reaching out to embrace the gospel or until they make it clear that they're not interested. They want us to move on. And when that happens, we say, I've done all that I know how to do. I've been accountable to God, but now you are going to, in a sense, be responsible before God. You know, I I think there's a difference between the first century and our century. I mean, obviously there is. But for Paul, um, living in that first century Mediterranean world, he got dust on his feet because he traveled a long way. He traveled a long way to deliver a message to a group of people, the Jews and then the God-fearers, who had been primed to hear that message. You and I living or being in uh, our 21st century and you living in San Diego are going to get dust on your feet, not because you travel a long way, but because you love and give and serve long hours so that a post-Christian culture can see some of the truth and have some of their uh, uh, misperceptions put away with and be open to the gospel. You know, it strikes me that Jesus did both. Jesus traveled a long way. Jesus came from heaven to earth. Jesus gave up the glory that he knew as the eternal God and took on human flesh. But Jesus also knew how to serve and love and give, whether it was reaching out and hugging a leper or spending times with little kids. And ultimately, that took him all the way to the cross. And it was there on the cross that he did the ultimate, in a sense, act of service as he gave his life. Jesus did all he could. He had, in a sense, lots of dust on his feet. But he says, now I'm giving that mission to you. And I, and I would say this this morning. I, I, I'm, in fact, I'm going to go out and just say, state it. I'm really thankful that as I understand Grace City Church, this is a church that has dust on its feet. You know what it means to get dirty in terms of taking the gospel and sharing it with someone else. But maybe I'm speaking to some of you here today, and quite honestly, that's not who you are. Your feet aren't dirty. And I'm just saying it's time to kind of get in and be part of the team and do what it is that God is doing through this church as he brings the gospel to this community. Well, let's go back to Antioch. So there's this opposition from the Jewish leaders, and there's really two results of it. On the one hand, the opposition of the Jewish leaders physically prevents Paul and Barnabas from carrying out their mission in one place. And because there's this opposition, they have to go someplace else. They can't continue where they've been. But on the other hand, the hostility of the Jewish leaders divinely redirects the mission to another group of people. And so Paul, looking to the Jews, uh, says to them, it was necessary to speak the word of God to you first, but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And so this brings me to the final observation. The gospel arouses or creates curiosity The gospel arouses hostility. But the final thing I'd want to say is that the gospel's reception determines our mission direction. You know, Paul and Barnabas had a plan. 
They were going to go to major population centers. They were going to go to the Jewish uh, synagogues there. They were going to preach the gospel. That, but depending upon how people received or did not receive the gospel, that determined their next step. Gospel reception determines mission direction. Now, this was certainly the teaching of Jesus. So in Luke 14, we, uh, we have a parable that Jesus told that we commonly call the great banquet. And what does the master who's God, say when those who are on the official invitation list, they're part of the plan, say, no, we don't want to come to the banquet. The master say, I want you to go to the roads and the country lanes and compel them, those who were not originally a part of the plan, to come in so that my house may be full. This was the practice of Jesus. Think of the instructions that he gave to the 12 when he sent them out. It says, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. There may be exceptions, and I totally get that. And I know that there are missionaries who go to people that they have to spend years to reach. And I know that some of you are, are spending time, uh, it's going to take years to reach members in your family. There may be exceptions, but the general rule is gospel uh, receptivity determines mission direction. I was on a Zoom call uh, a couple of weeks ago with a group of pastors, and all of these pastors happened to be church planters. So there were probably five or six church planters on this Zoom call. And it turned out that two of the church plants had recently been able to move out of temporary facilities into a permanent space. Now, you need to know that these plants are not in California. One's in Texas, one's in Louisiana. The circumstances are really different. But what was interesting to me as I listened to them talk is that both plants had ended up getting a more permanent location that was not in the original territory they thought they were going to go. And I asked one of the uh, planters on, I said, tell us why you made the decision you made. And he said, well, what we did is we took a, a map. And we got all of the people of our church and we plotted on that map where they lived. And then what we did is we simply put a pin right in the middle of where all the people in our church were living. And what we found is that it wasn't in the city that we originally thought we were going to be going to. They decided to get a permanent location right in the, in the, uh, in the city that was right at the heart of where their people lived. But then they said this, what we're going to do is we're going to go uh, build a stronger church there, and then we are going to plant churches that are going to reach the five cities that surround it. That's how God, in a sense, redirected their strategy. And one of the other planters on the call said, yeah, that's the thing about church planning. You just never know what God is going to do. Well, that's true of church planning. It's also true of ministry as a whole. But the fact is that God is at work, and what we want to do, as Henry Blackaby says, is to join him in that work. As he says in Experiencing God, look for the places that God is at work and join him in what he is already doing. And one of the ways that we do that, is, or you do that, is by looking where are people being receptive to the gospel. 
And you can do that as a church. And maybe there's a, a, just a group of people that seem to be very receptive or, or an area that seems to be receptive. Or, or you can identify whether it's a demography or a geographical area or a group of people. But who's being receptive to the gospel? And I can tell you when it comes to your own life, the people who are going to be most receptive are those who are in transition, those who have experienced loss, those who are going through hurt. And when you find those people in your own life, there's a good chance that they're going to be open to the work that God is doing. So what we do is to say, Lord, we, we, want, to, we want to be where you're working. Show us. You see, the Jewish leaders may have rejected the message, but the Gentiles in that town took to heart what Paul had to say. So we read in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now I want you to notice that phrase, all who were appointed to eternal life. Those are the ones who believed. And some of you, because I've already met you, you're sharp theologically, are saying, okay, that probably has to do with like predestination and free will, so I'll tell us about that. And I'm not going to. I'm going to let Randall worry about that next week because he's really good at that kind of stuff. But I want to tell you a story that illustrates the power of this. So um, I think you know that I live in Henderson, Nevada. Uh, my wife and I moved there in 1986 to start a church. And um, we really didn't love Las Vegas. We're not sure we wanted to live in the desert. It's really hot. But God clearly called us to plant the church. So one of the things that we did, and I don't know how you've made contacts, but we just went door to door for a while. We knocked on some doors. We didn't do it every night, but we'd go out after the sun was down and we'd knock on doors and see if we could just find anybody who might be interested. And uh, I remember one night I went out and, man, I came up empty. It was just pitiful. And I had one conversation with a woman at the door that turned south. And I thought, oh, I really blew that one. But the next day, I had this strong sense, the Holy Spirit, just to kind of like, you need to go out again. And so I went out again, and it was on that night out that I ran into a young couple who were out there in their front yard. They just had been married for less than a year. There were two children who were kind of late grammar school, middle school, who were hers from a previous marriage. And as I came up, they said, wow, um, you know, we've been talking about the need to go to a church. And so they came to the church the following Sunday, and that just was kind of the beginning of a journey that saw them renewing their faith in Christ, being baptized, becoming leaders in the church, um, becoming mature in their faith. Today, we still consider Dan and Bambi Bryant good friends. But here's why I tell you the story. I'm absolutely convinced that God had appointed this couple to eternal life. It was so obvious to me after I got there that God had already been at work. I didn't begin something. I just happened to stumble across what it was that God was already doing. And what I want to say is, can you believe that scattered all around this location, there are all kinds of young people and men and women and maybe even people groups that have that appointment with eternal life. You see, when you believe that God is already working and that God is already creating an interest in some people, 
then what you want to do is to simply say, God, I, I want to go. I want to find them. I want to serve because I know when that happens, there'll be a response. And when there's a response, there's always such good stuff that happens. Or let me say this, uh, with, with that in mind, and I think this is important. When it comes to the big idea, gospel receptivity determines mission strategy, but listen to this, and God is at work creating gospel receptivity. So it's not what we do on our own. We find the people receptive, and then we join them. We read in verse 40, uh, 49, and the word of the Lord spread throughout that region. The word of the Lord spread throughout that region. You see, one of the things that happens is when you plant a gospel seed, you eventually end up with a garden. It doesn't stay isolated. When it's received, it grows. All of a sudden, there is going to be a garden. More than 100 years ago, a traveling evangelist came to a farming community in North Howell, Oregon. Probably none of you have ever heard of that little community. But it was settled. The people who lived there were first-generation uh, first immigrants. And they cleared the land, and they were eking out a living by farming. But that evangelist decided to hang around in that community because he found an unusual receptivity. And there were three families, the Ditchens, the Schmitz, and the Fows, who all gave their life to Christ. They became the nucleus of a little church called the North Howell Community Church. You see, families were really big in those days. So you're talking eight kids and 13 kids and five kids. And I know that this story is meaningless history to some of you, but it's always meaningful to me. Because if I go back five generations, that's where I come to my great-grandfather. And I realize what had happened for the gospel to fall into his life and then impact my grandmother and go down through that generation. And friends, there have been dozens, I, I would say hundreds of people in that family trees, in the family trees of those families who have been directly impacted by the gospel and probably thousands of people who have been impacted through what has happened there. The gospel was received. The gospel spreads. Because when you plant a gospel seed, you are going to end up with a garden. So let me close with these thoughts. And I really like the Josiah, how you prayed. That was such a good thought, just in terms of being filled with the joy and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so I should have said something about that, but ponder that one. It's really good. But here's some thoughts to close with. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are on God's mission team. This means that you are expected to get some dust on your feet. And the dust may not always be the result of a long effort, but it will be the result of a long trip, but it will be the result of sustained efforts to love and serve and share. A significant part of your strategy needs to be receptivity. Let closed doors redirect you. Understand that God is at work in that situation, and then look at the places where God is doing something. And you can be confident that God is already at work. There are some who've been appointed to eternal life. Keep ministering, keep going, keep searching until you find them. And when the gospel is received, it 
will bear fruit. That's just the nature of the gospel. Individuals are changed. Family systems are transformed. Even whole cities are impacted. It may look like an impossible mission. It may feel like one. But friends, we've got a God who does the impossible. And he is already at work. And when we join him in what he is doing, boy, we experience a joy and a fulfillment and uh, an adventure that is so worth it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that there was a point in my own life where the gospel became real. And I understood, Lord, what it was that you had done for me. I grew up in the church, but Lord, I understood what you had done for me as never before. And Lord, my life was completely changed. And Father, I pray today for everybody who's here that, Lord, there would not be a person uh, who does not understand the gospel. And Lord, if they understand it, oh, how I pray, God, that they would be open to receive it. And Lord, that that curiosity would translate into faith. And they would not say, I've heard it, I'm going to walk away. Lord, thank you that when we, join, when we come to you, there's something that you call us to do. And Lord, it's a mission that begins with our hearts, with the change that you do inside of us. So Lord, fill us, uh, make us people of joy. Help us to reflect the image of Jesus. And Lord, with a heart like his heart, would you lead us even this coming week to the people who need you? to the people that, where you are already working. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. You are worthy of our worship, and we give that to you now. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.